This episode of New Politics was released on the 18th of March, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, we look at the AUKUS deal and what it means for Australia. More corruption in New South Wales. This time there's a recording to prove it. And we've been asked the question, why do the mainstream media avoid the Robo-Debt Royal Commission? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, also secret Home Affairs Minister. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but... Whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Further details of the AUKUS agreement between Australia, Britain and the United States have been released and to suggest further details is a bit of a stretch. There's still a lot of secrecy surrounding this, but the public has been told that it will cost $368 billion over 30 years and the Australian government will purchase at least three nuclear submarines, possibly, and possibly may purchase three second-hand submarines in the early 2030s. And apparently there will be one submarine built every two years from the 2040s up until the late 2050s. That sounds like it might be around 10 submarines altogether. There'll be five US and UK submarines boating around the coast of Western Australia from 2027 onwards and who knows for how long. And there'll be new shipyards and upgrades in Australia. And $3 billion is being given to US and UK production lines over the next four years. Now, this really is pie-in-the-sky kind of material and who knows, will large-scale submarine technology still be relevant in 30 years' time and what will the geopolitical situation be like in 30 years' time? And the cost of this is all pretty astronomical as well. It's odd that we have $368 billion available to spend on submarines, but there always seems to be a struggle for governments to find money to pay for hospitals, for nurses, for teachers for schools, for aged care, for NDIS, for infrastructure. And the previous government even went to the extent of using an illegal robo-debt scheme to claw back just $0.75 billion, apparently because the budget situation was so dire. But $368 billion for submarines, no problem at all. It's always like that in defence. Of course, countries need a defence force. And defence is not just military defence, of course. There's biological defence, there's climate defence, cultural defence. I'm really thinking of from larger cultural entities to try and subsume the local culture. Nonetheless, it's a form of defence. And it's something that governments should be concerned about. Of course, we don't want Australia invaded by a foreign power. And so we should have a defence force that is able to match or better current threats. Are there current threats? Now, that depends on who you ask. You ask Daily Telegraph and China is salivating, ready to invade at any second, just waiting for us to blink and the red peril comes through. I can't really see the Chinese Ministry of Defence getting too concerned about six to ten submarines hitting the Australian fleet in 20 to 30 years. We will have a maximum of 10 or 12 governments in that time, all with different agenda, 
all with different policies, all with different philosophies. There'll be a consistency, but the consistency thing we've had since about 73 is that China is a strong and fair trading partner and a ally. Now, we may have problems with some of their behaviours, but if you stopped trading with people who you had problems with, you'd be a single market and not like the one that Britain just left. You'd be trading with yourself. And if you want to be part of the global economy, which is probably for the best in many ways, you don't want to offend your friends too much. But you can express that your friends do things that you don't like and perhaps should do things in a different way. And that's part of it too. So the dog whistling coming from mostly Murdoch, and we discussed last week how it's well within the press's interest to have war and rumours of war. That narrative that China wants a war with Australia is not terribly valid. There is the chance, of course, that America is trying to use Australia as some kind of proxy, but I can't see the strategic value in that unless America is prepared to send a lot of troops who will probably lose. They lose things like Pine Gap. They lose other strategic spots around Australia. I can't see it in the American interest to have a war with China using Australia. Australia could quite morally and quite honestly call itself a neutral participant and use its power to mediate between the two. And with a department headed by Penny Wong in foreign affairs, it's something that would be quite efficient and give Australia its due in the world. We're not a military power, we're not an economic power, but we can be, particularly in the South Pacific region, a diplomatic power and a cultural and social power for good. Of course, I don't know what foreign affairs and defence are doing. They haven't really said too much because they shouldn't because at this point, raving lunatics from the Daily Telegraph don't actually do a lot of damage. The Chinese know the difference. The original AUKUS deal, that was a surprise announcement that just appeared out of nowhere in 2021. And Scott Morrison was recently described as the architect and the father of AUKUS. And that would have been news (laughs) to the United States. But with most of Australia's defence arrangements, it's not like the Australian Prime Minister of the day sits down and thinks, oh, hang on, we need something like Pine Gap in Australia or some sort of deal to purchase some new nuclear submarines. The US would have told Australia in this situation that this is what's going to happen and then Australia has to pay for it and manage the issues politically on the domestic front. And this really is quite a big deal. And aside from the merits of the AUKUS or otherwise, and I don't really think that it's worth the money or worth the strategic merits of what they're trying to achieve, $368 billion dollars even if it is spent over 30 years, and good luck if you think that it's going to be contained at $368 billion, that's a lot of money and foregone revenue that could be used for so many other different things in Australia. And the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has even said that he will support a cutback in the National Disability Insurance Scheme to support AUKUS. And I noticed that he didn't suggest maybe cutting back the stage three tax cuts to support the cost of AUKUS, nor did the federal government. But governments do have choices about where they spend their money and how much. But the Labor government can't say that it hasn't got enough money for things such as increasing Newstart or better funding for schools, Mm. hospitals or education or aged care, and nor can the opposition for that matter. But whenever there's a belt-tightening budget or claims that we just haven't got the money to pay for all of these useful things in Australia, well, people can just point to AUKUS and say, well, there you go, you're spending $368 billion on this unaccountable program. 
they should be spending all the money in the world on these other things as well. And I think this should also make the next budget released in May quite an interesting exercise, both in terms of finances and politics as well. It's the first budget. And, of course, this is where you put all the bad stuff with the hope that people forget it by the third budget when the election rolls around. (laughs) I will be fair here, and now we'll get the people saying, oh, you're just shills for Labor. I do genuinely try and look at everything from as many perspectives as I can imagine. The government is in a difficult position. There are a couple of things that I don't understand, which I, I will be critical of. I'm not critical of them because I don't understand them. It's the not understanding that makes me think there's something going on here. But they're in a contract. They had to honour this contract. It doesn't go well when you don't honour a contract. It can cost more money than, than it is. The contract was signed by the Australian government, but under a different management. But Labor inherited this. I don't quite understand why they're praising it so high. Yes, you need to announce it, but they've announced it as a feel-good thing and great news for Australia, which, one, I don't understand why you'd go down that role because no one's going to be convinced. I understand that Labor has to honour a contract. And, of course, Australia now also has the reputation of not honouring their contracts, thanks to a certain Prime Minister who shall not be named, who went behind the back of the French and cancelled the better contract they had to get this one in. Oh, well, I guess there's always going to be politics involved, but I think we need to consider a whole lot of other Mm. factors here as well. And I realise that when it comes to military development, the countries do need to take into account what the future world could look like, and that's a lot of guesswork, of course. But in this case, it's almost like they're taking into account the worst-case scenario. And I guess, of course, these are the things that you do need to take into account, but Ultimately, at what cost? Do we also need to take into account that Nigeria or Brazil is going to attack Australia in 40 years' time? It's completely unlikely, but it is a worst-case scenario. And governments never manage climate change issues on the basis of a worst-case scenario, and that's a much bigger threat than the existence of China. And all the government seems to be doing at this stage on climate change is opening up new gas fields and coal mines. So we can see how different things are managed in a different way or different issues of risk are managed in a different way. Submarine technology is likely to be different in about 20, 30 or 40 years' time and there have been suggestions that cluster and drone technology could be far more effective and far cheaper as well. Geopolitics could be quite different in 30 or 40 years' time and we have to remember that 30 years ago we had the end of the Cold War and the end of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union was seen as a massive existential threat to the entire world and So that was just 30 years ago. And if there is a perception that China is a really, really big threat, and I think that this has been totally blown out of all proportion, well, it might not be the same threat in 40 years' time. And and of course, we don't know what will happen in 40 years' time, but there's a different side to this as well, where it's propping up a military industry and employment in three different countries, and that's Australia, UK and the US, and it's supposedly sending a message of containment to China. But this is also nebulous and so secretive, it's also quite unaccountable, and it can be pretty much defined in whichever way a future government wants to define it. And as you mentioned before, there might be 10 or so different governments over the next 20, 30 or 40 years, but it could also be another smoke and mirrors trick and it could end up being an extension of what happened during the time of the Soviet Union where 
Soviet workers used to say, well, the government pretends to pay us and we pretend to do the work. (laughs) In this case, it could be a matter of Australia pretending to pay the United States and the United States pretending to send us submarines. So, of course, that's a joke, but this shows just how ludicrous this whole situation is. I suspect the paying won't be pretending. The sending of the submarines may well be. We'll be talking more about this later, but Paul Keating was absolutely correct to excoriate the government for this. And even though, yes, they may be stuck in a contract they can't get out of, that they were made to take up because of the decisions of a previous government, the management around it, to me, seems to be almost asking for it to be knocked down. And and maybe there's a long-term game of knocking the last government down, again, speaking politically. But you're going to do a lot of damage to yourself in that. Geopolitically, the US is a fading world power by the looks of things. Joe Biden might turn it around. It's more likely he'll slow its decline, unlike other presidents we might name who hastened it. The UK has been a middle power since officially Suez in 56, probably, I think, be that breaking point after two hideously expensive world wars and a changing geopolitical environment after both of those wars. So we've gone in with a declining power and a middling power, which is on the decline too, a power that shot itself in the foot. We should be signing these long-term defence agreements with Indonesia, with China, with Vietnam, with Cambodia, with the Pacific Islands, with South America, with Africa, with India. And I know that Prime Minister Albanese has copped a bit of grief fraternising with Modi. That may well have been better handled, but India is a presence in the world that can't be ignored. Well, I guess that factor is that India is almost as big as Mm. China as well. So politically, there are differences between the two countries, but both of those countries are massive. But politically and media-wise, like I think politically this gives the... Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, that wartime persona that all political leaders crave. So there is that political dimension to this. So if we look at Bob Hawke, he had that craving for wartime leadership and took that on during the first Gulf War back in 1991. John Howard certainly did that whole Man of Steel persona after 9-11 in 2001. Tony Abbott, Scott Morrison. And historically, before this, we had Billy Hughes, Bob Menzies, John Curtin, and leaders all around the world like the colour of military khaki as well. And the other factor is that the Liberal Party pretty much has to be in agreement for all of this. AUKUS was created during their time of government and defence is seen as their natural territory politically and they're hardly going to complain about more funding for defence issues. But it was interesting to see that for two days after these additional AUKUS details were released on the Monday... The ABC and most of the mainstream media only asked the opposition for their opinions and their analysis. And first of all, they spoke to Peter Dutton on the Monday. Then the following morning, they asked Joe Hockey and George Brandis what they thought about AUKUS. And then for some reason, they went to Senator Simon Birmingham as well. Then they spoke to Scott Morrison and then to Andrew Hastie. All of them gave their opinions before we finally received some commentary from someone in the government. And that happened a few days afterwards. And Now, generally, I'm in two minds about this. I'm not sure if this is such a big issue or not, but Peter Dutton was previously Minister for Defence. Hockey was Ambassador to the United States, but out of politics since 2015. George Brandis is also out of politics, but he was the Ambassador to the UK. 
Morrison was the Prime Minister when AUKUS was created and Hastie was a member of the SAS. So all of this sort of makes sense on some level. Of course you'd speak to these people. But still, there used to be a protocol that government ministers give their media conferences and then speak directly to the media to provide their analysis and be asked questions about what they're doing. And then the media would go to the Mm. opposition for their commentary. And that certainly was a protocol that was observed at the ABC. But... Maybe the government ministers weren't available. I don't know exactly what the case was. But I think it's more important that we hear the analysis first up from the government on these issues and not from the opposition. We need to know what the opposition is arguing. (laughs) And if we don't know what the government's done, it's just blather. And honestly, I'm going to go a bit Paul Keating here. Joe Hockey couldn't get the respect of a Trump government. He was considered somewhat of a joke and pushed to the side as Australian ambassador in a Trump administration, whether it was a case of this guy is way too much like us and might accidentally show us up or whether it's a case that he's just another unemployable incompetent. It's really just absolute nonsense to get his opinion on anything. He's entitled to his opinion, but we don't need to hear it. Brandis is only slightly better. As High Commissioner to the UK, lots of meals happened, lots of nice nights out happened, but not a lot was done to further Australian interests in the way a High Commissioner should. The less we see of the pair of them, the better it is for the psyche of Australia, I think. We don't need to be reminded that they were in those positions. We don't need to be shown just how clueless they are. We just need to move on and yeah, ask the government first. Yep, bring in the oppositions. Birmingham was a, an appropriate opposition person to speak to, as was uh, Dutton as leader of the opposition. What they were saying is a whole other thing, but it, in the roles that they are currently in, yes, appropriate people to speak to. But only after we've heard what the government had to say about it, then we can weigh up. Did they actually say anything useful and worthwhile and make good arguments? Probably not, but miracles do happen. Or... You know, is it just nonsense to hear what they had to say? We don't know what the government was saying, so we can't really judge whether it was of any value or not. So their value was diminished. So it was really poor choice on behalf of the ABC to do that. Oh, well, good to see that you're channeling Paul Keating there, David. So that's very good to see. But speaking of Paul Keating, he was the former Prime Minister, of course. He had quite a different perspective to the government and most other people on AUKUS and he blasted the AUKUS deal, he blasted the Labor Party and he had a good go at the media as well. Uh, you've been extremely critical today of the Albanese government, uh, including ministers uh, Richard Miles and Penny Wong. Are you concerned that your comments today could represent a fundamental rupture with the party? You've already said that the Prime Minister hasn't uh, responded to your request to brief him on this. And secondly, you have a, a tremendous uh, skill uh, for invective and criticism. Could I ask you now to turn some of that to the Chinese Communist Party and its treatment of uh, Uyghurs, for example, its treatment of pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong? Will you be similarly critical of them as you are of people in your own party and journalists? After what you co-wrote with Harcher last week in that shocking presentation in the Herald on Monday, Tuesday, and when you should hang your head in shame. I'm, I'm surprised you even have the gall to stand up in public and ask such a question, frankly. You know, you ought to do the right thing and drum yourself out of Australian journalism, you know. I mean, that's the, the most egregious, the worst, the most biased presentation. You pick up four specialists. You could have picked up John McCarthy, a long-term specialist, uh, Alan Gingell. You pick up four China hawks 
the biggest of them all, Jennings, you know, Davina Lee, these are all China hawks. You represent them to your community as having an independent view where you know full well that you've selected them to the, do this thing. And here you are asking me about Uyghurs and you're asking me about... Uh, if I said to you, and I did say when I saw it last time, here's the Prime Minister over, there's all, everyone over to India, not one, one question from any one of you about Modi shutting in the Muslims in Kashmir in, in the pro-Hindu policies. Nothing. But there is still a question, Mr Keating, about the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs. Yeah, well, look, the treatment of the Uyghurs... I'm not to defend China about the Uyghurs. I mean, there's disputes about what the nature of the, of, of, the, of the Chinese affront to the Uyghurs are. There's a dispute about that. But one thing we can't be sure of, what if the Chinese said, but look, what about deaths in custody of Aboriginal people in your prison system? You know, wouldn't that be a valid point for them? Wouldn't it be a valid point? In other words, great power diplomacy... Is, cannot be about reaching down into the low social entrails of these states any more than they can with us, you know. But the Sydney Morning Herald, frankly, it's, it's a newspaper without integrity. And the age follows it in, poor little, like a little pup running behind, you know. I mean, if I were you, mate, I'd hide my face and never appear again. Not too sure if the Uyghur people of China would agree with what he just said there. He might be right about Modi, the Uyghur people, maybe not so much. But Paul Keating had a lot to say about AUKUS. He said that it was the Labor Party's worst foreign affairs decision since Billy Hughes had those conscription referendums in 1916 and 1917. He's probably right on that one, but not just for the Labor Party or the Labor Party in government, but any federal government in Australia's history. And Malcolm Turnbull has also been quite critical of the AUKUS agreement. So... There's two former leaders from different sides of politics who think this is all a bad deal. And I would just disagree with one thing that Paul Keating said, and that's when he said that he would never have allowed the AUKUS deal to happen. Now, it just doesn't work like that. As we said at the beginning of this section, the US is pretty much the one that dictates what happens in these circumstances. And we only have to look at what happened with Gough Whitlam when he tried to dictate a more autonomous and independent direction away from the United States and Britain in the early 1970s. He didn't last very long as the Prime Minister. So generally, I think that AUKUS is a bad deal for Australia, but there's probably not much that Australia can really do about it. Yeah, that's what it gets down to. And we can look at underfunded schools, underfunded hospitals, underfunded courts, underfunded other parts of defence, defence support for veterans and for service people who have been injured either mentally, emotionally or physically. We can look at... So what you're saying is that we still have to get the raffle tickets going for the schools. Pretty much, yeah. You know, when I was growing up, there used to be a bumper sticker that said, we know progress had been made when schools are fully funded and they have to run a raffle to buy a new fighter plane. And it's still the case now. So it's... I wouldn't be bragging about it. I think the government has made a massive mistake in not just saying it's a good thing. That I get. You're not going to say, well, we've signed this shocking deal with our allies and what a f- gee, we got done over by it. You're not going to say that, I get that. But to sort of say it's the best thing ever and, and of course, unless they're setting up Scott Morrison as the villain because they did praise him a, a lot. But I think that's like holding a grenade next to you and standing next to the person you like instead of throwing it. You're going to get hurt too. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, 
or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. been asked why the mainstream media has mainly stayed away from the robo-debt Royal Commission and the Commission has finished up its hearings and we won't hear anything more about it until it releases its report at the end of June this year. But the answer to this is complex. It's to do with the combination of the political persuasions of media proprietors and news editors. There's all the commercial pressures of advertising revenue and the key audience groups that generate that advertising revenue. There is that class difference as well. Many people who work in the media as journalists are from middle and upper class backgrounds as well and an issue like robo-debt affected people on social security payments and pensioners. So there might not be that personal interest there. But that, to me, is only a smaller issue. The bigger issue is the downward spiral of free-to-air media and the dwindling supply of advertising revenue. The ABC doesn't have this issue to deal with and what's going on there is probably more related to political interference and other factors going on there. But free-to-air media, it's targeting this smaller, cashed-up and older audience that just probably wouldn't care that much about robo-debt and the news coverage is probably reflective of that. That's right. I mean, they've made a choice too. Most of the media, uh, the Guardian is an honourable exception. Saturday paper is an honourable exception, and of course, smaller media outlets like ourselves and others are also honourable exceptions. But when it comes to the Fairfax papers, the News Corp papers, Fairfax Television, and the ABC, there's been nothing. I think you're right in that part of it is that it's an ageing demographic who are a little bit older, and the proprietors think that they're not going to be that interested. But robo-debt affected a lot more people than you think. There were plenty of people who were on benefits of some kind for six months, 10 years ago. You know, they had child support or something that has a rather generous threshold and got done for it and found themselves with massive debts. And again, let's be fair, it's just as wrong if it's somebody who can afford it and who didn't accrue that debt as it is for someone who can't afford it and who didn't accrue the debt. The, the issue is not the affordability. The issue is the false accrual of debt. To me, this is the stuff that newspapers should thrive on. A story of injustice, a story of government malfeasance, a story of government corruption. I would imagine that there is one or two journalists out there who went into journalism to expose this. Well, maybe that's where the difference comes into it, but I, I guess there's also been this divide between legacy media and social media and, and new media as well. And the mm. commissioner of the Robo-Debt Royal Commission, Catherine Holmes, she did make a point of the media coverage of the Royal Commission, and here's what she said about that. This commission has to inquire and report, and an important part of the inquiry component these public hearings because it's the opportunity to explore evidence in a public forum. But not many people have the practical ability 
or the time or perhaps the will to sit through day or day, day after day of hearings. The interest of what I'll call the traditional media to distinguish it from social media in these hearings has, with some honourable exceptions, been patchy. It tends to flare when an ex-minister is on the stand. There may be sound commercial reasons for that. The subject matter doesn't concern the demographic which they cater to, or the issues are too many and the evidence too extensive and complicated for their form of coverage. But as a result, I've come to appreciate the importance of social media in this context. But the Commission's media officer has drawn my attention to some of the Twitter commentary and I've been struck by how committed and serious some of the people tweeting are. They provide an almost full-time running summary of the evidence with occasional comment. Some of them are people who've long been engaged in the robo-debt issue and they both tweet and cross over into mainstream commentary. I'm thinking of people like Dr O'Donovan, uh, Mr Morton and Mr Enrique Gomez, I may have mangled his name while others, I can see one right in front of me, are new to the, newer to the subject, but no less intent on conveying what is occurring in these hearings. Now, I hasten to say I don't agree with um, every pricey or characterisation of the evidence that I've seen, but I want to acknowledge that the Twitter coverage of these hearings has performed a remarkably useful and important public service in giving people access to the evidence. And this is quite an unusual intervention by the Commissioner, and she was alerted to the coverage on social media by her communications team, but still it's a commentary that she didn't really have to make, but she did make it. And I'm not one of those people that suggests that social media is now the only reliable news source and should be at the expense of the mainstream media. Social media is quite useful for journalists, but it's also got quite a few problem but I think that the two should be going hand in hand but the mainstream media and legacy media is just so dismissive of social media they should be adopting it as much as possible but that's a matter for them I'm sick and tired of giving free advice to the Liberal Party and to the media (laughs) these are all issues for them but what the commentary from the Commissioner has done is produce this broader debate about the future of news collation and who decides what is seen or heard on free-to-air media and Predominantly, the mainstream media is wide, it's Anglo, it's male-dominated, and and it is becoming increasingly irrelevant. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's totally irrelevant, just that it's becoming less relevant, but if the way that the news is being presented and reported to audiences is not what they're after, well, they're probably going to switch off. But my feeling is that the mainstream media news services, they probably just haven't adapted to contemporary circumstances very well or to modern technology very well. The ABC is very well positioned to make a transitional change successfully, even though its current political coverage is pretty terrible in my opinion. But the other mainstream commercial media, I just don't think they've got very long to go in their current formats. It's a dying industry. Certainly, Australia has never had a great media. There's no great newspaper like the London Times once was or the New York Times or the Washington Post or the uh, Le Monde, which did consistently great work over decades. Sydney Morning Herald and The Age did occasionally great work, but was mostly aimed at a readership that didn't quite care about the news. And again, if you're a journalist who works for one of these, you've probably done great work and I probably have admired your work at some point. It's the editorial 
Sydney Morning Herald and The Age were playthings for the Fairfaxes for a while till they ran out of money. News Corp became a sinecure for uh, Rupert and his sons. There's definitely been a decline. Something like the Daily Telegraph used to be actually pretty good for reporting the bare fact of parliamentary happenings. As a young historian, I often found it was really useful to go to the Daily Telegraph or the Mirror, the old Daily Mirror in Sydney, and just have a look at what happened in that day. So it it would cut down my shuffling through pages and pages of Hansard to get the same thing. Now they start with the invective on page one and just ramp it up on the opinion pages. The Herald is not much better. The Herald and the Age had, we'll call it, managerial bad luck and are trying to chase an audience that I don't think exists anymore. And their traditional audience is moving away into other forms of news. I don't think they can go back to being a slightly progressive journal of record, but they can't keep going the way they are either. Oh, well, I'm not saying that all of the mainstream media is terrible. I'm just saying Mm. that most of it is. Mm. There's still some good stuff that's out there. But we can see that other sources of news and reporting within the community, whether that be through social media, podcasts like New Politics or independent media websites, these are becoming more important in the public discourse of important political matters. And David, you and I, we keep suggesting that the mainstream media is becoming less relevant, yet we blast them for not reporting the important issues. Maybe it just doesn't matter anymore. And despite the reluctance of the mainstream media, the news of robo-debt was still getting out there through social media and new media outlets. And the other issue that we do need to consider is the class difference as well. News editors are generally from well-to-do backgrounds and they tend to employ like-minded people from similar class backgrounds. And that's certainly the case at the ABC. And that gives us some clues as to why we see so much reporting on interest rate hikes or the budget, stage three tax cuts and the fear that these might be taken away or repealed. And that's the reason why we got all of that hyperactivity that took place on franking credits during the 2019 federal election. All of these issues favour higher income people and we get that reflected in the media as well, which is also where most of the people working in the newsrooms and and the editorships in the mainstream media. So this is why we mainly get the news that generally favours the wealthy and the property classes. And, you know, who's got time to report on a government stealing from pensioners and people on social security payments if these are not the advertising drivers that are propping up your industry? And it gets down to that. Capitalism is a great tool and a terrible end. It's one thing for the Financial Review to speak on the wealthy. It was set up as a paper for people who are in, well, finance to know what's going on. If you don't like it, you don't have to read it. Newspapers are a different thing. They do perform a community service. They do perform a vital community service, as does radio, as does television. But when technology gets away from you, you either have to embrace it or ignore it. If it gets too far away from you, you'll die. And Looking at it from the outside, it's a fascinating time to be watching this firsthand. And yeah, we can all think of really excellent journalists who did really excellent work, including from time to time in the Daily Telegraph and the Herald Sun. I know half of Melbourne have just rose up in anger, but you know, it's a it's a paper that deserves to end, the Herald Sun. It really does. But there has been good work in it in the past. 
and my point in this is not saying so please keep the legacy media alive my point is is that it wasn't all bad but it's become worse and was never terribly good and yes technology has played a part but the reason people flock to technology is because there was a gap from those major papers and to go back to my original original point when you look at some of the very excellent journalists we've had in australia you wonder why our proprietors weren't prepared to let them be more excellent than they were and give them more stories so must be very frustrating to be a mainstream journalist in Australia if you're a deep-thinking journalist. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Last week, we discussed the high level of corruption that exists in New South Wales, and we don't think a change of government at the New South Wales state election next weekend is going to make too much of a difference to this, but there was a release of audio tapes of conversations between former New South Wales National Party leader John Barillaro and national candidate David Lazell and his campaign team, where, aside from sounding like a complete tool, boasts about all the pork barrelling and largesse in the lead-up to the Upper Hunter by-election in 2021. Yeah, that's right, Kofsaba. Yeah, I remember that. I just went out and said, we're announcing the additional... We're going to do tunnels, not the... What was it called? The open... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that would add, that, that's half a billion dollars to the tab. And I so we're doing tunnels. I'm just sending a check. Astrid, with all the investment in infrastructure... I'm glad you call that an investment, not pork barrel. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do appreciate that. As, as of course, pork barrel are. I'm the one that's got to try and get to ERC and explain how I've given $100 million in the election. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, that's right. And that's just ticking over. There's still yeah, five yeah. days to go. Anything can happen. Anything can happen now. George put in that Singleton needs a new fire station, so I think we'll be funding that this week. And then it was like, okay, we're going to fund $25 million. Siobhan, can you find $25 million? <laughs> and Paul tools off us going, we've got a 50-touch No, just need a $25 million blanket check. Is it Paul? It's majority government. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, hey, $25 million. Oh, well, well, I got you. $42 million for Musselbrook Hospital. $11 million for Singleton. There's some little bloody rara fish at Cayuga or whatever. And then $650,000. Oh, my God. You know, yeah. And you know what? We'll get into Scone this week. We're going to give them some money for their roads. Another $20-odd million. So, you know what? Oh, God, no. There's five days. Oh, there's some... I'm going to give the guy that... You know the guy that runs Rock... This is like the Rock, days of uh, Black Rock? Yeah, Blackrock. So the Aboriginal Land Council want to build yeah. this big facility. We're going to give them four million bucks too. Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? They are good. Why not? You can have it all in New South Wales. You can have it all. Yeah, exactly. Of course, there's no law against bragging about pork barrelling. And it seems like in Australia, there's no law against actual pork barrelling either. But we have to remember that John Barillaro won a defamation case against Google in 2022 and was awarded $715,000 for Google refusing to remove 
videos that accuse him of being corrupt. And here he is referring to pork barrelling and bragging about how all of this largesse and throwing money around is going to win the seat of Upper Hunter for the National Party, and it actually did. The National Party ended up getting a 3% swing towards it and held on to a very important seat for the New South Wales government at that time. John Barillaro is no longer in Parliament, but all of this happened while he was still a politician. And there is a general election in New South Wales just next weekend. The audio recording was released by the independent journalist Jordan Shanks, also known as Friendly Geordies. But the mainstream media has been very, 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 very quiet about this, as though they don't want anyone to know about it. For whatever reason, they want a paratate government back in. New South Wales needs a Perrottet government like a hole in the head needs a hole in the head. It's a double redundancy. And Barillaro is probably the worst leader of the nationals New South Wales has ever had. And that's a long line of mediocrity and corruption, incompetence and just foolishness. And Barillaro is the worst of, and, and the least qualified. Somebody like Wal Murray at least had years of public service and substantial achievement whether you agreed with the achievement or not it's a different thing but there was an achievement there Barillaro had achieved nothing wanted to achieve nothing except the continuation of his own political power for his own gain couldn't handle the heat in the kitchen as it turned out and tried to set himself up with a cushy New York job which failed like everything else he did allegedly and there is a sense to, Tony Abbott had this I think I've spoken about this before Whereas Tony Abbott would openly speak of corruption without fully realising it was corruption. I don't think Barillaro ever realised that it is wrong to pork barrel. Different seats have different needs and as a government you try and spread it out fairly. Now sometimes some seats will need more money or more resources for some reason than other seats. But you don't really look at what party is representing that seat. During the New South Wales floods, nationals and liberal seats got more money than Labor's seats. The water didn't say, oh, I'm not flooding this. This is a Labor seat. I might get contaminated. I'm staying in this one. It went right through everything. These are arbitrary human-drawn lines on a piece of paper made to help the administration of the state run a bit easier. The water doesn't care. But people living in Labor seats got far less and sometimes nothing as compared to people living in Liberal seats. He did not see that this was corruption. And he might argue, oh, I didn't personally gain from it. That's a whole other argument in subtlety and nuance. And of course, subtlety and nuance is something that he has neither of. But it's a point where it's so entrenched in him that he can't see it for what it is. Now, we are having quite a bit of a go at the mainstream media today, but there's so much to report on here. And as you mentioned before, David, generally the public loves to read about crime and corruption, especially when it comes to politics. And that's not to say that they like the idea of corruption in politics, but if newspapers want to boost their sales, this is the type of material that they need to report on. And even if they're not interested in the public interest, they should be thinking about the bottom line. But it seems to be more important for them to not report on this material when it comes from the side of politics that they support, and especially on the eve of the New South Wales general election. But the audio itself, it's almost like a poorly acted scene from The Godfather and take your choice whether it's one, two or three, it's all the same. But it's like a meeting of gangsters without the guns and the talk of cement shoes. But these people are based, they sound a little bit thick as well. They're openly talking about corruption and openly talking about committing acts of corruption, but 
There's nothing about this in the mainstream media. Now, if you compare this with the reporting in the lead-up to the 2011 New South Wales election, and we are going back some time there, when there was so much talk about the corruption of Eddie Obeid and Ian MacDonald, and rightly so, that's what the media should be talking about, and that's what I expect them to do. They were also going on about the actions of former Minister Joe Tripodi at the time, and that was all on auto-rotation in 2011, just before the election. But 12 years later, the same level of corruption, but it's all being ignored. Now, in my opinion, and you referred to this before, David, the hole in the head, in the hole in the head, the worst thing for New South Wales would be a return of the coalition government. It would be a repeat of what happened in New South Wales in 2007 when the New South Wales Labor government was given another term in office that they just didn't deserve and provided the worst government between 2007 and 2011, and that was the worst government until this term of coalition government. So the media does have a responsibility to inform the public of these bad behaviours that come from a government, not just slag off an opposition just because they don't like them and overlook corruption from their own side. Corruption irrespective of where it comes from, has to be reported. You cannot take sides with these sorts of issues. No, you can't. My sense is that the government got its non-deserved win last time. Berejiklian should not have been re-elected. And I said that at the time and everyone said, oh, no, she's not that bad. Then ICAC came out and then everyone stopped talking to me. There's no way a non-entity like Perite should win. And... To be honest, I think when he put that uniform on for his 21st, he lost this election. The fact that the Sydney trains crashed was just the cherry on top of the manure castle that the government has become. I'm not saying they can't win because New South Wales can do silly things. Um, There's talk that one nation might get another. We already have the charming and jovial figure of Mark Latham. That could be just the press trying to build up interest away from the independence. And again, there's a teal movement in New South Wales, which the Liberal Party is very worried about. Whether they get through or not, state politics is different to federal politics. I don't think there's going to be a landslide, a minslide, if you like. I do think it's going to be a bit similar to the federal results, which was a slight Labor majority and a lot of independents. Some of those independents, of course, were members of the Liberal Party and got kicked out for corruption or what have you. But most independents are going to sense the change in the wind and will put their support and supply behind a Labor government, I think. Not much will change. Hopefully the corruption will be a bit less blatant. Hopefully we won't get the humiliating side of a Premier tapping a keg for clubs New South Wales. There's a severe, severe clean-out needed in New South Wales. We need to go to a pre-1788, just bulldoze a lot and start again at this point. Certainly the shadow of Barilaro looms very large and I don't think it's a positive shadow even in National Party centres. And the good, honest people who traditionally vote National Party are starting to notice, are starting to wonder, are starting to care and are starting to change their votes. It's unlikely the shooters and fishers will come through. Their leader, Robert Borsak, has just gone to Africa and shot another elephant, which doesn't go down well. With even hunters in Australia know that some animals need to be protected. So I don't think Dominic Perrottet will be writing thank you notes to John Barillaro anytime soon. 
That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.